Hi there and welcome to Leading with James Ashton. Each time this podcast brings together two leaders from the worlds of business, charity, the arts and beyond to discuss how they learned to lead and their successes and failures at the top. We're supported by Saxton Bamfile, the executive search firm and leadership advisor. Find out more about their services at saxbam.com. This episode has a fluid agenda. First up, Jack Buckner, the former champion middle distance runner who now leads British Swimming, the elite aquatics governing body with eyes on success at next year's Olympics. Joining him is Peter Simpson, chief executive of Anglian Water. They're the biggest water provider in England and Wales by geography, serving more than 6 million customers between the Humber and Thames estuaries. Please enjoy this recording and rate and review us. I started off asking Jack whether success for him was all about winning medals. Yes, technically it is right. I'd like to think there's a bit more than that, but um, I guess that's the KPI over which I'll lose my job or not. But having said that, I think there's a shift in strategy about using sport for inspiration and there's a lot of strategy development around that, which I welcome. So for me, it's not just about the medals, it's about telling the whole story of sport. And I think that's how we'll mature as a, as a sector. So I suppose one challenge then is is how do you get an organisation up every morning on, I mean, you, you're, you're really generating interest and excitement on, on what is probably a few split seconds of activity of success that comes along every year, two years or four years. That's right. I mean, for the people who are in it, they're very, very driven. So often the challenge isn't getting them up every morning, it's they get up and break down doors. So a lot of, you know, my my population if you like particularly those people in performance sport they're phenomenally overcommitted. they give their whole life to it actually getting up in the morning they've probably got up many hours more than before you haven't they so they have so so they do drive themselves incredibly hard and they're very demanding on themselves and everyone around them so it's a very high performance appropriately elitist environment in many respects and you're often managing stress around that Actually, getting people motivated is is probably not the issue. It's getting them to kind of calm down a bit. Because you talk in the document about uh, your strategy document, which always looks several years out. There's something, I think, around clarity of purpose, which is you, you almost want to give them everything they can do to clear everything else away from them and let them really focus in the pool. That must be your job to make, make it all about that, that extra notch of performance. It is. It is. I mean, it's interesting. I mean, we lost uh, in Rio Olympics less than a second covered about uh, five medals because the margins are so fine and we had so many fourth places and that's the way of sport you know you 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 are dealing with narrow margins in in elite sport so you try and do everything you can to get everyone ready and perform at their best. Peter I'll come on to you and, and there's lots of aspects of your company to talk about but I note you've already won a gold medal of sorts you are the CEO of the year Um, According to Glassdoor, which is the employee reviews website, I mean, this is not to be sniffed at because it's very, very easy to be a a lesser light on Glassdoor because this is where employees go to grumble. So so what what did you do right? Well, it's a tremendous uh, compliment to have that. Um, What did I do right? Well, I suppose fundamentally trying to treat people as I'd like to be treated myself. It's a very simple sort of mantra I've had since starting work, actually. I think if you kind of follow that, then actually you don't go too far wrong. And what is the and what is the challenge then as you sit here for Anglian Water? Because there's financial metrics, there's um, there's safety, there's environmental, and and so on. How do you balance that up? Well, there's lots of things. I mean, often as chief execs, we see ourselves as spinning lots of plates and trying to make sure they all keep spinning and and, and drop down. And and it is important to make sure you're attending to the to the really important things. Um, for us as a company, one of the absolute fundamentals is making sure that we provide enough water for 
the economic growth that needs to take place in the region and the housing growth that's coming uh, in a region that's already water scarce and doing it in a way that doesn't damage the environment but actually enhances the environment. So right at the heart of kind of what we're about, it's how do we actually get those things to happen? And that's a mix of everything from big investment through to actually how people work and how we engage with communities to help us on that journey as well. Because that was your conversation with Offwater, I think, last time around. You know, remember, guys, we're a very dry region and actually lots more houses are being built. And, you know, as a business, it, it's almost a living business. It's changing, you know, as you look sort of five to ten years out. Very much so. And, and we do see the real impact of climate change, the nature of our businesses. We do see that the effects are on us and we have to think about that and we have to plan for that, those changes over time. And we have to plan... On, on actually what's going to be happening with economic growth and housing, and we have to adapt to that. But we also have to do it in a way that actually enhances the society we work in, but also the environment we've got. And, and that means it's you know, it can be quite tough, but it's also a challenge that we've tried to engage communities in as well. And I guess part of the reason we took out the sort of slogan, the brand, the way of thinking called Love Every Drop way back when was to talk about water and water companies' roles in a very different way uh, with our customers and uh, it's quite clear really that our success ultimately will be driven by their behaviours as much as it's driven by what we do. So how much water they're using, not blocking sewers and that, that kind of thing mm. by putting inappropriate things down the toilet and the sinks and that sort of stuff. So it's a, it's very much a joint effort and I love every drop which we came up with back in 2009 or so was our first way of kind of just pushing that message out. Yeah, because you, you're like it or, or not, Peter, I think you're seen as one of the good guys in in an industry that has had image problems. I mean, do you feel that you need to, because of that, you need to lead from the front to show them, you know, the examples about how you can engage more closely with community and, you know, get the conversation away from the profit, the dividend and so on? I, I think there's a lot of companies now who've kind of got that and there's lots of really good examples of water companies doing doing similar things in terms of that engagement. Um, and one of the really exciting things recently has been all companies committing to what's called public interest commitment, but essentially a yep. series of joint goals which we all share. And the difference about those those things really is it's these are goals that we'll collaborate and innovate together on on achieving for the benefit of society and the environment. And and they include you know really ambitious targets around things like carbon and our commitment to achieve you know, net neutral carbon emissions by 2030 sure. which is pretty pretty bold stuff but that's all of us together yeah. so that's all of us on that journey i guess is, is one way of putting yes, it. yes and you've put that in so that's in your company constitution i, I wonder what that means for you on a day-to-day -day basis you know when you're you've got to consider the broader stakeholders every day in the office well as a business uh, you know that's how we have run our business for many many years mm. it's the way our, our shareholders want us to think it's the way the board wants us to think that's how we operate the most recent thing we did was to enshrine that triple bottom line really in our articles as a way of kind of making sure that whatever happens in terms of changes to ownership and, and the like in the future, that it's really clear what's written on the tin about the organisation. But it hasn't, you know, actually, it's the way we operate. Jack, you came in a couple of years ago at British Swimming and your predecessor, 23 years in the role. So um, I don't know whether that makes it easier or harder as, as the new guy to say, now we need to have a change, guys. Well, sport's an emerging sector in many ways. And so when my predecessor started, it was very much a, a voluntary organisation with, if you like, almost aspects of community community groups are very volunteer driven and sport's been through a steady process of professionalization over the last 20 plus years so you know a lot of the things we've just been talking about stakeholder management partnerships with government agencies and the commercial sector become increasingly important so you try and evolve it 
on and improve you know aspects of governance to take into account the way the world's moved on and sport still remains though the, the fascinating bit of it is ultimately we're still in the hands of the volunteers you know most of the people who do sport are volunteers and we need to remember remember that and mm. so you need to take your community with you on that journey and mm. Often you'll sit in board meetings where you've got someone who's got a very, very volunteer perspective against someone who's talking about the global Olympic movement and you know, commercial partnerships. So the, the range of interests is quite diverse and hopefully our governance reflects that. And we want to respect where we come from, but we also need to be fit for purpose in the way the world's changed. And you have to be the, di- the diplomat, I suppose, There's a, picking the middle, the middle way. Well, I think for me, and this listen, in listening to leadership, I think leadership is about a vision for the future, being positive about it, and then uh, strong collaborative partnerships. So I'd prefer not to be, um, I mean, that slight analogy feels a bit on the receiving end, as I'd rather be proactive about it and lead towards a vision of the future and take people with you and collaborate around that. So I just think you have to kind of, collaboration I think is key in all of our worlds. And somebody said to me, collaboration's a contact sport, which I like Mm. in the sense that you have to negotiate to reach positive outcomes. So Mm. I suspect that's true for many leaders. Mm. Collaborating with a range of stakeholders, driving the business forward is really key. Do you agree, Peter? I do, and it's interesting, actually, over the last few years, we've been doing a lot of work with sport. Uh, Actually, Adrian Morehouse and his organisation, and we've taken about a 1,000 of our senior managers and managers in the business through what we call Transforming Our Leadership Programme. The key point really is, though, a lot of that is looking at sport and looking at really good examples of what happens in sport that we can take back into business. Uh, And that's been really, really powerful stuff. It's made a big difference to how we lead in the business. A great, a great example I always have in my mind is one of the big issues in managing and leading people is how do you, how do you give and receive feedback? How do you actually kind of mm. do that? And uh, I remember Adrian talking to us about uh, having just won his gold medal, getting approached by his coach, basically giving him, coaching him and saying, and at that particular point, you know, demonstrably he had the gold medal, demonstrably he was the best <laughs> in the world, and yet he was open to receive the feedback and it was delivered in a way that he would be open to feedback. Things like that are actually quite important because, you know, it's quite easy to get into an organisational culture where people aren't listening to each other and they're not receiving, they're not, they're saying they're open to receive feedback, but really they're not. And so stuff like that has been very helpful ways of breaking down perhaps some of the the paradigms that have existed in some of our some of our, our leadership in the business. So there's some really good links and mm. read acrosses. And, and your point about, you know, collaboration being at the heart of this, absolutely, absolutely central to what we do. So British Swimming kind of sits on top of the, the nation's sports organisations. And then I guess to a degree you sit on top of British Swimming. So what do you need to add as an individual to that pyramid? I think... Um Probably again, we sort of, I think setting out that vision's key. Mm. You know, so I think setting out the vision and trying to do it in a way with a, a longer term perspective. So it's not all immediate. And sadly, often in sport, it can often come down to the immediate. Things yeah. seem to happen very quickly. But putting in place that longer term vision, I'm particularly keen now, UK sport talking about strategy to 2032, which is quite exciting because sport traditionally goes kind of in four-year cycles linked to the Olympics. Mm. So it feels as if at this moment in time, we've got a chance to put in place a longer-term vision. And Mm. many of our partners, the cities and other nations, want us to do that. So I think there's that. That's as important as anything. And then I also think presenting that positive view and then also I do think there's something about trying to drive for change and key innovative projects through 
a complex system is another aspect of what I do. Because there are two things from reading your strategy, Doc, that, that sprung out. There's, you, it's almost like you've identified the gaps. This organisation needs to be hotter on marketing, it needs to use data better and so on. And then, very, very clear, you've got those short-term targets. So Tokyo 2020, you, you'd have been thinking about it from the day you walked in, in the door, um, five to eight medals in the swimming it's two or three in the diving and amazingly it's about 40 medals in the paras you're saying if you don't come home with 40 medals in the paras you it will be a disappointment yes it probably would be it's an amazing number <laughs> yes it is it is i mean um yeah it is uh, so i think yeah i think what you have to do is i couldn't tell you what adam Peaty's having for breakfast on the 15th of june but we're not far away if you see what i mean so we are very much tied into those kind of very precise short-term things with that Tokyo lens. Mm. But at the same time, we're having to get some of the key people to go through a planning phase for the future. So what we normally do at this time is we, we have a bit of a phase between now and Christmas when we kind of try and plan and think post-Tokyo, and then we kind of batten down the hatches from January onwards. And it's, you know, we don't almost think about the future. And then you kind yeah. of jump out. And so you're kind of going from a, a shorter term to a longer term focus. Right. So as long as he's having three shredded wheat, that's that's okay. But, <laughs> d- but but I guess you can't, you know, you clearly aren't going to be poolside. You have to, th- th- there are the coaches there to do that. You have to, and you have to give him the freedom to own his sport. Absolutely. And I've had to give an example that goes the other way. When you tend to get to the pressure point of an Olympic Games, you need to trust your staff and someone like me needs to keep out of the way. And... <laughs> It was interesting, last Olympics I was at triathlon and um, I was scheduled to get on a plane at Heathrow to go out to the pre-games training camp at Altitude. My performance director picked up the phone and said, Jack, don't come. <laughs> so so I, I didn't come and afterwards, you know, it all went very well and everything. But sport tends to create those pressure points mm. and you need to have the confidence that the key people can perform when mm. in that moment and mm. a chief exec being involved would be a complete disaster mm. yeah. P- peter talk, tell me about the um, your view on short versus long-term targets because i guess you could go in there and say well we've got to get the leakages down for today for tomorrow for the next day and then at the same time you're also thinking well we're doing great works on the wetlands you know in norfolk and around there and this is something that is there for society and community forever so this is kind of a twin track, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I guess the, the first thing to do is to be very clear on what your long-term priorities are and make sure you've really got those sort of grounded. And we've got a 25-year strategic direction statement which lays out four big ambitions as what right. we're trying to do. And so then, that beats swimming. Well, I don't know. <laughs> it, it's a very, you know, this is an area where it's quite, it's quite different, you know, when you're Absolute, looking about timescales of the sort of business we're in. But that does come down to what's in the five-year and what's in the year and what's in the month and what's in the day. And where we do have similarities with swimming is, you know, we break down lots of the things we're trying to do into their constituent parts and try and work out what are the changes that we need to make to those constituent parts to improve our performance on a day-by-day basis. So the balance between, you know, where we spend our effort and what we should be focusing on is really set by those goals, those outcomes, cascaded right the way back and and through the organisation top to bottom. But then there's a lot of work at the actual detailed level about what are the component bits that actually lead to that level of performance and many of the ways in which we think about that are not that dissimilar actually to how athletes break down their training schedules Mm. and what they need to be good at Mm. there's quite a lot of similarities to that and what what's what kind of manager are you peter well i'd like to think i'm I'm a leader a a leader first because i think that's what the the job's all about um i'm one of those people who likes to set 
people up for success. I, I like. I think my job basically is trying to create an environment where people who work with me can be as successful as they could possibly be. And whether that's in terms of how we train and develop the individuals, whether that's be in terms of conditions we put them in, whether that be in terms of the processes or the IT or whatever it is, I try and think about it like that. And I think if they think I'm doing a half-decent job, then by definition almost, I'm setting them up to be successful and the organisation to be successful. And, and Jack, what about you? What's your style? Yeah, I think so. I mean, my back, background was originally an elite athlete, so I'm very comfortable with the kind of leader as coach model. And, and I think probably for the early phases of my career, I was very much the leader as coach, mm. which encourages empowerment and individual responsibility. And I think that took me a long way. But then I think the slight risk with that approach was that at times I almost became too close to people because it was very much the team yeah. in the lead. So I think I've probably, if anything, I've come from that leader as coach model. But I've, if anything, tried to think about that so it doesn't become too much arm round personal. So it's a bit more strategic. So I've tried to balance where I've come from with the organisations mm. I've been through. I'm coming on to your own personal record hall, you know, later on. It's, <laughs> it's and also that transition, I think, is is very interesting as well. Peter, a little bit more on the on the day to day. Then, how closely are you to the front line, or say to the um, to the metrics, if you like, to performance metrics? Well, it, it's critically important for a business like ours. You can't not be close to to the performance of the business in terms of water quality and environmental mm. performance. You, you get too far away from that, and very quickly the business runs away from you. That's different to sitting on the top of everybody and doing their jobs for them. So trying to get the balance between seeing all the things you need to see and seeing it so you you can genuinely see what's happening at the front line, the people who are actually doing the work, but not trying to do their jobs, but understanding what your role is, which is to make sure they can do their jobs as effectively as possible, is always a balance for for any leader, and Mm. it's certainly a balance for for a chief exec. My background is principally within the operations of the business, so I've I've got operational DNA written through me, and therefore probably the biggest challenges I have are making sure I get the balance the other way and making sure that I don't try and do other people's jobs like the example you were just talking about you know it's very important to get that because if you're setting people up for success you've got the right people they're trained in the right way you've got the right sport around them then they're doing the job you're not doing the job so have to be close to it because you're not close to it things can run away quite quickly and then you can lose a lot of work that you've put in over many years but ultimately you have to trust in the people and and the investment you've made in them and when were you last out on the front line Last week, I'm out every week. What, what um, do you do? Well, it varies, actually. I mean, go out. Um, I've got a set of keys to get in everywhere. And off I go. And uh, and I turn up on site and I go and look at what's going on and talk to people. And one of the things I often say is we have a lessons learned process, a sort of learning mm-hmm. process about stuff that, stuff that doesn't always go right or stuff that's gone really well that we want to learn from. And I haven't come across in the last 10 years an example when I've been out on site and I'm talking to somebody on the site who's actually doing the job where they say, you know, we've had something that's gone wrong, for example, and they say, this is what this is what actually happened. That doesn't marry with what I've actually seen in the, if you like, the corporate report that's sort of come right. out in the, in the week. So I think we have quite a good line of sight to what's actually going on on the front line and what I experience when I go out there. And also, I think, I'd like to think anyway, that in terms of my style, I'm quite accessible. I, I certainly get plenty of feedback when I'm out and about. I don't think people are too worried about uh, the position title. I think they're, they're more anxious to say, well, you're here, right? We'd like to tell you about something. They can probably hear you coming with that enormous bunch of keys you've got jangling in your pocket. <laughs> yes, it is a big bunch of keys. It is a big bunch of keys. I also walk around with black plastic bags in my pocket as well because uh, on operational sites, I'm a great one for picking up rubbish. So I generally have a great big 
black plastic bag if I find any rubbish and uh, it tends to change the, the behaviour that's going on on the sites if, if they see me walking away with a black plastic bag that's full. I don't need to say anything. I don't. I just put it in the back of the car that's and off we go. Yeah. Does it matter? There's still a big debate about you know who should own our water industry. In your job as CEO, does it really matter who the shareholder is? Uh, I think it does matter. We're very lucky in Anglian in that we've got long-term shareholders, essentially pension funds, who, who are not in it for a quick, quick buck. They're there for the long term. They want to invest over a long term. They, they'd sack me quite quickly if I came in with something which was a short-term solution. So I think that aspect is quite important, actually. The nature of these sort of businesses means you really want shareholders who are going to be there and commit to the long term because it's quite easy. If you're only popped in for a year or, or a shorter period as a big mm. shareholder, then actually there's a lot of decisions that could be suboptimal. Mm. Whereas, you know, we're planning, you know, big infrastructure over a quarter of a century uh, in many cases. So please don't nationalise would, would be the message. Well, I, I was there. I joined just before privatisation. At the other end, yes. I remember what it was like. And I would say definitely don't go back there. There's been a huge improvement in the amount of flooding that we see out there, the river, river water quality, interruption mm. supply, bathing water quality, any metric you want to look at. It's been a step change mm. since privatisation. So, and was just so much more efficient than we used to be back then. Mm. So I definitely wouldn't want to go backwards. And, and equally, I don't really see the reason for doing that, mm. given the cost that would be involved. Yeah. With the commitments that the industry's making for the future in terms of this public interest commitment stuff I talked about earlier, the level of ambition in a lot of that stuff, I think it's another reason why you'd say, well, why? Mm. Why would we want mm. to do that? And just finally on the financials, is it ever the CEO's role? Has it ever been your role to say, this dividend is too much? You know, we need this money to put into the, into the company. I know it's all come down now. I think the dividend probably has come down about two thirds from about one fifty to closer to fifty, sixty million, and so on. But is that kind of discussion just above your pay grade, or, or do you have ever had concerns about it? Well, the, the dividend discussions are, are matters for the board sure. on which I, which I sit, ah. um, and therefore you're part of that discussion. And it is very it is very much about well, what what is the appropriate level of dividend to mm. pay out, and what does the business actually need? So that is the active discussion that takes place. And when I look at our, if I think about where our shareholders at the moment, the last two years, they haven't taken a dividend out of the out of the group of companies because they wanted to reinvest, mm. and they've reinvested a hundred and sixty-five million pounds mm. of money that they would have had as dividends because they what they wanted to do was address particularly some resilience issues um, and also some investment in customer service. So there are a couple mm. of things that they particularly wanted to do. So I am part of that. I have to say, having the nature of the shareholders we've got means it's not a difficult conversation, but that's where the conversation takes yeah. place. Uh, Jack, uh, talk a little bit about culture because th- you have to get so many little things right to make, make sure that you know, your elite sports people can perform at their best in the pool. So how do you, so how do you set about that? I think, um, I think, first of all, I mean, we've worked quite hard on that as an organisation. In fact, we've worked quite hard on that as a sector. Uh, so I think it comes from the leadership team, comes from the coaches and you have to keep working at it so we do lots of you know shared discussions around culture what the british swimming way is uh, we've got this thing one team winning well in water so what's one team mean what does winning well in water we break it down we do a lot of work on it and and um, we also test it under pressure so we review occasions when maybe we haven't stuck to that there's been some quite in British sport, there have been some quite high-profile examples recently in, fortunately, other sports where, where there have been cultural issues. And we've looked at a lot of that. We've taken a lot of learnings from that. Mm. And we work on it and we involve our, our athletes. And so we have to keep, have to keep working on it. And, and, and it's particularly relevant because the average age of someone in the British swimming programme is 19. You know, mm. So within that, there are a lot of school-age 
children and people doing remarkable things at young. So, so getting the culture right and trust and confidence and parents and what happens sure. poolside, all of that is really, really important. So, you, I mean, you'll have seen the headlines recently, some criticism from Dustin Lance Black, Tom Daly's husband, about... I think it really boiled down to how close the family should get to the mm. performer at the times that they're in they're in the elite competition. How would you respond to that? Yeah, no, I mean it was a really interesting discussion. It's probably um you know we're very much in that looking ahead to Tokyo. So I'm talking with the BOA about because actually there's quite a few of our established stars now who are going to be parents and yeah. now as well and they're going yeah. to be away from home for a long period of time. So trying to make sure that the family supported, the family unit supported, but at the same time there's no compromise in the elite environment so getting those balances right is something mm. we're we're vigilant on and expectations are changing all the time about what's appropriate and what isn't so i hope we've got it about right we don't want to go too far one way or too far the other because this is a very big call particularly when you've got big names involved and it's, it reminds me of some of the football tournaments you know do you let the wags in or do you not let the wags in i think mm. i think so i think i mean without wishing to not football as a general rule most of the olympians and Paralympians I've mm. worked on have got an astonishing work ethic that actually can put some professional sports to shame. But I think often now things happen. I mean, if you if you look at people's programs, Tom's in particular, he's got one event at the beginning of the games, another later on. He's got a big bit of time in the middle. You know, all sorts of things can go on. So trying to create an environment where he can feel supported and he's got access and other all of them got access to the support they need, but at the same time are able to focus rigorously mm. on their performance. Because when they get on that diving platform or jump into that pool, you know, there's no nobody at the end says, well, actually, you missed the medal and, you know, um, oh, it was nice, though, he spent a bit of time with his family. Nobody says that. No, no, so sure. getting that balance right is really important. I love that you know his schedule already. <laughs> it's that level of detail, isn't it? it? Just as you were talking there, it reminded me of, of some of the things that came out of the development we, we did with Adrian Morehouse's outfit. And one of the particular things that came out that came from sport was actually that attention and being there in the moment and paying attention. And it was something that we caused us to reflect on conversations that were taking place that were not of the right level. And the fact that increasingly we'd had meetings taking place where people were preoccupied with doing lots of other things. And one of the, one of the sort of cultural change, well, the cultural change, the process change perhaps was this whole idea of contracting at the beginning of meetings mm. and things like that to actually say, well, what is it that we're trying to do out of this meeting? What are the sort of practical things we need to set up? But also, what's the psychological contract that we need to make? You know, are there, are there issues that we need to get kind of take off the table in this now that are, or things that are going to get in the way of us being able to focus? And that's all, you know, everybody does that now. And then after that, so right now, this is what we're focusing on mm. and this is what we're going to do. And it was the discipline, actually, from many of the examples of many of the Olympic athletes who we'd spoken to as part of this program that really came through. You know, when you're there and you want to focus on that, that's what you do. And you focus on them. Then when you're done, you do other things. And it was it just, again, it's kind of blindingly obvious, but sometimes it's very helpful to have it held up from another area mm. to say, well, yeah, this is how you win your gold medal. You know, mm. this is how you yeah. go about it. Peter, you've alluded to it already. I want to go back to the beginning. I think you've been at the company 30 years. Yes. yes. Yeah. And, yeah. and joining from straight from university and, and as you say, pre-privatisation. Pre yeah. So you've, you've, seen it, you've seen it all. What do you think that the value there is now in having 30 years in the building? Does that afford you, you know, more respect, if you like? You've done every job going. How do you view it? 
Um, well, I, I, my career is a bit unusual in some ways for, for people in Anglia. I spent quite a chunk of it out working overseas in our, our overseas water companies. Of course, there were some other um, assets then, weren't there? Yeah, we had quite a lot. I worked in North America, South America, Central Europe and Asia. So I, I sort of worked in a different... So I got, it's a little bit different. But to the heart of your question, I mean, the reality is, you know, trust is earned, isn't it? Just because you're there a length of time doesn't mean anything. Uh, just because you've done loads of jobs in the company in different regions doesn't really mm. mean anything. I find it incredibly helpful that uh, it's one of the things I say to actually our graduates when they, they first join us. I normally have breakfast with them or something like that when they in their first week or so. And I, I normally say to them, look, just remember, unusually, actually, in a utility, you're still likely to be here much longer than you would be in most companies these days. And how you behave around people and how you treat them will basically dictate some of the success you may or may not have. If you go about it in the wrong way, you're going to create a network that's not that useful. If you go about it in the right way, you're going to create an incredible network which will survive multiple reorganizations and will uh, endure despite sometimes what management in inverted commas does to the organization in, in the spirit of taking things forward. So that, that network, that, those relationships is, are really, really important. And that's something, to, to your question, that's something I've got a lot from because mm. I've got people who talk to me as the person who worked for them way back when, people I was on the gangs with uh, who are still in the business now because you know, my first year of the company had to do every frontline job in the company. So there's people on the gangs who, who, I, who, who I meet now who still talk to me in the same way they did then. And it's brilliant because that, that does give yeah. you a, a cut through. And so, until what do the gangs do? So this this was way, way back at the thirty odd years ago. We used to have lots of direct labour gangs who actually did repair and maintenance, say distribution, mm. distribution repairs. As part of my original graduate program, you had to spend the first year basically doing every frontline job. Mm. And you know, there are people still in the in, in our business who I bump into who who have moved to different positions in the company, but st- were there and took me out on you know with them doing repairs yeah. at the time it just gives you a different conversation and it looks like i mean i've dug out the cuttings it looks like at the age of 37 you had day-to-day controls as coo of the water business did you feel you were ready then were you surprised at that appointment did you fancy it oh it's a job i'd always wanted to do really um oh yeah de- definitely I, I i and so yes i was really excited about it i have to say then and now there's a great bunch of people i work with people i've got a huge amount of respect for mm. who make it possible so it wasn't something that i had a huge amount of trepidation going into because i thought there's a, a huge you know a fantastic bunch of people around me mm. who i knew and respected and i knew we would form a, a really good team and that's proved to be the case and, and the team today i you know i've got a huge amount of confidence in and a lot of the focus we've put in over the last few years is really trying to make sure that team is you know, the very highest performance team it yeah. can be as a bunch of people. Very much focused on the, the macro goals for the organisation as a whole, not focused on their individual mm. director of accountabilities, if you like. And and that's how it that's how it works. That's how it looks and feels when you come into the organisation, mm. which which uh, I know we're all very proud of. Jack, I go, go back in history with you. I mean, middle distance runner, 5,000 metres was your sport at an absolutely golden time, really. I mean, I looked when you World Championships in 87, when you came in behind Saeed Awita. I mean, you know, mm. a, a legend. And then I also looked Steve Avetz sort of trailing in, in the pack. <laughs> so it was an incredible time. What do you take from that and the discipline you needed to achieve at that level and bring it through into, into management and leadership? It was a wonderful time to be involved in sport. And I suppose um, one thing I do is I feel grateful for having been involved in sport all the way along, really. I was fascinating because it was at the uh, a real time of change, so sport was still largely amateur then, and it was going through this sort of probably slightly painful transition into the professional era. The other thing which was really interesting was um, at that point in time, we were the best middle distance running 
nation in the world by some distance. And then if you ran the clock forward two or three years, it disappeared within about two or three years. And um, if that happened now, that would be like British cycling getting no medals in Tokyo and there'd be big public inquiries. But at that time, because mm. it was driven by volunteers, it disappeared and mm. nobody said anything, which mm. I still find remarkable that a culture disappeared around, you know, Co, Ovet, Cram, Peter mm. Elliott, myself and others. And it literally disappeared in about two or three years. And one of the great things now about UK sport and the investment in sport is that hopefully there's more resilience in what was at that time a volunteer volunteer system. So, no, it's brilliant. It was absolutely fantastic. I loved it. It's interesting, I think, also, though, psychologically, I think if you're an elite sports person, you probably recognise at a point in time that whatever you do for the rest of your life is insignificant, if you see what I mean. Mm. So, so I think there's quite a lot of psychological stuff to go through that we're probably still not necessarily mm. good at. And, you know, I often look at sports people and see the challenges they have later in life and completely yes. understand it because yes. nothing yeah. will match with the moment yeah. In the sun, as it were. So. Yeah. And you showed, yes. um, I mean, there was, just from what I picked up and reading, there were certain things you were doing that, that marked you out as, as someone who might stand up and, on issues and so on. You were, the, you were the rep on the athlete's body. You campaigned around. I've done the reading. You know, yeah. you campaigned around <laughs> against doping and all that yeah. sort of stuff. So you were really marking yourself I out did. as... I mean, you know. It was funny, I was probably slightly ahead of the curve there because it's quite, when you look at the debates going on now, um, I championed uh, at the time to get blood testing in sport. Mm -hmm. um, so it was interesting. I mean, I, I championed quite vigorously for changing sport, improving random tests and everything and mm. got put on the IWF Athletes Commission. And then six months later, I got a letter from the president being removed from the commission, which I've still got. <laughs> and it was a reflection of where sport was at that time. You were I was, causing too much trouble. Uh, I, I think I probably was. I mean, interestingly, I was probably a bit ahead of the curve. So I was championing an agenda that took another mm -hmm. almost 10 years to, oh. to come through. So I was probably slightly ahead of my time. And when you're young and slightly hot-headed, you don't necessarily have the diplomatic mm -hmm. patience that I probably got now. I wasn't, mm. I was, I, I was quite, I did push quite hard for change. So diplomacy is something you pick up over the years, Jack, but is there also sort of a, a, a sense of training, if you like, whether it's business administration or leadership or something? I think it's really important, whoever you are, you've got a sense of justice and what's right. Mm. And I expect the same is true, you know, you know that sense of what's right, what's right yeah. for the business, how you communicate that to your stakeholders. And you probably have to, um, you know, you can't bang the table too much, you know. And mm. back then, as a athlete, seeing people win medals who felt wrong, you know, I got pretty passionate about it. Probably now, when I see injustice, I'll probably, mm. you know, talk it through with the board and communicate in the right way and we're trying to do some interesting work at the moment with some of the professional elements around the International Swimming League and certainly a much more diplomatic process than mm. it was back then. Peter, what about your um, development? Were there mentors that helped you on the way? Oh, oh, many and I learned a lot and in fact one of the the uh, things I say to people when, they, when they're thinking about pulling out a, a management book on, on leadership, of, of which there's may, very many, mm. is just think about the people who you, who you followed and analyse in your own mind what it is about what they were doing that made you want to follow them. And you'll begin to quite quickly distill down the things that are important. And that's what I've tried to do through my career. I've had some fantastic leaders who I've wanted to follow and I've tried to copy bits of what they're doing and, uh, and within my own, own style. And, and one of the things I think that came out for me a few years ago thinking about that was this whole concept of authenticity and mm. trying to 
trying to make sure that people don't try to copy what they've seen in that, but actually recognise they are who they are and they need to bring themselves to it. But just reflect on, on, on you know, why, why, they've, uh, why they've been following people. Just talking about the, you, you're talking about sort of values and it's interesting, you know, do the right thing. That is one of our, our values as a company, you know, do the right thing. Uh, and it's really, really important in, in our sort of business that people always understand that they can go back to that and say, look, I don't, for whatever reason, I don't think this is the right thing. And I'm going to say, I don't think it's the right thing. It's a simple thing, but actually to get it right, I think is, it's very, is, is, yeah. is much more complex because it requires the culture being sufficiently embedded that when someone confront something that they don't feel comfortable about they have got the courage to express it i think that's a really healthy place for an organization to be to yeah. to do that because often it will be a difficult a difficult point in time won't it or event or yeah. circumstance that, that provokes that oh, yes it, it is yeah. and, and actually it's only when you've had the examples gone through and people have behaved in a particular way that they go Ah, right now, now I get that. Now that, that value actually is logged because I can see it being acted out. If it's just something on a bit of paper, then it, it makes no no difference to anybody. So, th- and that's been I mean the example I gave earlier about sort of learning from operational events of one sort or another over the year. That right, at the heart of that is actually people feeling they can be open and honest about what it is when it hasn't gone perfectly well, and understanding that the organisation will deal with all these things in a just way, mm-hmm. and will look at them in in the right way and won't go right okay so who's the person who told us that well that's the first person who's going to be leaving the organization Mm. and the second person Mm. is the person who was with them and Mm. and you know you have to kind of get and say what's the just way to approach Mm. this how how do we really understand and get the learning out of this and then it's it's repeating that and then people go okay that's how it works Mm. here then jack what about um, mentors for you the people who helped you make that jump you know, you were marketing at Adidas for a while. There was Sport England roles, and then, and then suddenly, not quite suddenly, you were running um, the, the triathlon. I think so. I mean, the, the thing that's, in a way, what's what's been the continuous thing is is involvement in sport, really. So whether it was Adidas or on the other side. So yeah, I mean, I, I I've looked around and seen great leaders in sport. You know, obviously, a teammate of mine, Seb Co, somebody who you know we shared rooms together in the past, and so seeing how he, you know, I was just staggered that he had the courage you know having done London 2012 he could have sort of that could have been him you know but he went on and you know he's now taking on world athletics and things like that so a lot of the things Seb, Seb's done I've yep. I've really admired um, does he snore <laughs> I can't remember gosh that was a long time ago now no um <laughs> I, I want my maybe, maybe I did I think I think we both had events so uh so you know when you're in that thing you're both pretty light sleepers you mm. know your heads thinking about what what you've got to do the next day on the I, track i suppose it is a great and obvious thing that an elite sports person becomes a sport administrator and leader and so on i mean it's not for everyone obviously you have to adapt no yourself. i think i think so i mean again the other route i could have, I, I deliberately didn't want to go down the sports route in the sense of tv media which a lot of my friends have done because I, I, mean, I respect them for doing that, but I think I wanted to develop other aspects of my personality, so other aspects of my leadership. Mm. So in some ways, it's harder being a, a sports leader, sports manager than it is being a commentator um, in some respects. But I, I'm pleased I took that mm. route. I, I was just thinking, just, just reflecting on, the, on your earlier question, actually, I was asked a, asked a similar version of this about six or seven months ago when we, we were doing a piece about, well, what are, the, what are the things that's influenced you as a leader at full stop? And I actually went back to a couple of people who very, very early on in my life, who I thought really, when I thought about it, had actually had a profound impact. And one of them was a guy called Tom Weecroft, who's the um, the gentleman who bought back motor racing to Donington Park. And um, the, the reason that particular time, that's where, where the family lived. And I was very young. 
but I saw somebody come with a what seemed like an impossible vision, absolute commitment. But I just thought I heard it. I thought I can't see this. And then I watched over several years as a young, you know, as a very young child, I watched this thing build and become reality. And it, it always stuck with me. And the second one was it was a guy called Bob Muckleston, um, who used to run Orion Airlines out of East Midlands Airport. And uh, he was a friend of our, our family, as both of the gents were. And I, uh, he took me into Orion, into the airline, and he took me round and showed me it. And the key thing was I watched how he behaved with all of the employees. So I had this picture of this CEO of this airline, or this is, you know, people are going to be doffing their caps. And I watched the way he behaved, and I, and, and I saw the way people responded to him. And his sort of service ethic and the fact that he did the equivalent of my black plastic bag walking around on, you know, aircraft it just struck me so i don't know because i was reflecting on this as i say a while ago and, and i went back sort of thinking well what is it what is it that really and they were things that that very early age i kind of referenced back to so these are actually it's, it's the equivalent of, of of listening and observing really it's not forget the book necessarily with all the rules in it and actually just be in, intelligent as you go around your daily work i i i think you can quite quickly you know understand why you're following people why you want to follow them and, and pick up the traits that are Things that you know you, you might want to you might might want to emulate, and, that, and that's just two individuals in, that struck me from a very early point in my life. And Jack, anything about you know advice to your younger self or things you could things that have gone wrong you could have done better? Gosh, being authentic to yourself, yeah. I think, is really important. I do think it takes you time to discover who you are and be authentic. Um, it's interesting you raised the point about the um, the drug stuff, and you know at that time I think you know I think I probably could have made more of an impact through a bit more patience. So my mistakes I've made in life have been because I've been impatient and a bit impetuous. And so I've been on a journey to be a little bit more patient. And mm. um, so I definitely think on that particular issue you, you raise, my, my impatience got the better of me in my mid-20s. Mm. Had I tackled the same issue five or ten years further on, I think I'd have been far more effective in yeah. in delivering the change I was seeking to deliver. And what about you, Peter? Anything I, gone wrong at all? Oh, yeah, pl- plenty. But I, I suppose the way I think about it is I, I try and condition myself to think about everything is a, everything's a learning opportunity. You know, don't beat yourself up and be too hard on yourself a a lot of the mistakes in inverted commas that we make along the way are are the only way in which we make the next best decision because we've learned from it and sometimes we condition ourselves to say bad is making a mistake but there's a wide range of what you might call mistakes and all of them the key thing is well what okay what what have you learned from it what what does that mean about what i do next and whilst it might feel bad at the time and as we all do I think if you kind of look at it and think, well, okay, I don't really want that to happen again. What is it? What is it I can do differently? Then it certainly helps me to put my mind in the right space. Is it at all lonely at the top? The, the you know one man leading five thousand with a, with a black carrier bag? Yeah, I, I think there is a, there's an aspect to a CEO's role which can be lonely, um, and I, I think it comes back to the point you were making actually earlier about sometimes the, the friend and there has to be a little bit of distance that exists there, which it can therefore mean that there can be can be lonely. I would say I'm, I'm very lucky in that I've got a, a brilliant team around me who do a fantastic job, so it's not so acute. But yeah, there are, there are times, and, and I think it sort of does go a bit with the territory. There are certain times when this particular job has to feel that because it's having to do things that actually 
only that role can do and that's right and proper and, and that's why we're doing it I guess. And many of those trade-offs are, that we've talked about the short and the long and, and, and so on and, and Jack finally is lonely or lucky or, or? I think I think I would agree with that that comment now I think it's really interesting that I think if you're going to be a chief exec all the style elements that Peter's talked about have been fantastic I agree with that but at the same time you need to take responsibility and you are accountable so mm. having just that little bit you know because sooner or later there may be some real tough stuff you've got to deal with mm. and I think that sense there is a potential professional uh, maybe lonely is too strong a word but professional mm. I would call it responsibility and accountability mm. that I believe you should take seriously and stand mm. up for but I think the way I get support is from a wider environment that's not just professional if you see what I mean so I think yeah. you, I think you need to build in mentors like I've done to different points in my life so I've always got someone I could pick the phone up to yeah and switching off I guess you can still do you still run yeah well i think i think the thing with sport is because sport happens it's very hard and maybe the same truth peter that anything can happen at almost any point in time you know i yeah. I, I, I could have at any point in time someone missed a drugs test or something or somebody mm-hmm. you know so there's stuff that can happen so i i reconciled myself to that when i took this role in sport I needed to have a bit of me that was ready to turn on at a moment's notice. Yeah. So that's why I waited to a point in life when I was ready for that. It must be the same in Anglian, Peter. I mean, six, yeah. six million homes, anything could happen anytime. Yeah, I mean, it's a 24-7 business. And um, yeah, absolutely. Uh, you, you, have to be, you have to be ready to be able to respond to that stuff. But I, but I also think putting the effort into making sure the organisation is geared up to deal with those things is the single most important thing. Mm. I'd be pretty horrified if I was having to pick up the phone every 10 minutes because of operational issues that were taking place in the business and, and that would tell me there was something pretty fundamentally wrong with the company Yes, uh, in terms of how we set things up. So one of the things I would say is over you know, the, certainly the last 15 or so years, we have moved to a place where the decision-making is at the, uh, the, the appropriate level. Mm. And when you know, we are setting and we set, put the decision-making at the appropriate level by empowering those people but also setting them up you know by putting a lot of investment in their training and development and making sure they've got the systems around them and then you say yes therefore it doesn't need to keep to mm-hmm. keep coming up um, up to the, the mm-hmm. CEO for, for decisions Peter Simpson and Jack Buckner thank you so much for the conversation thank you thank you Thanks for listening to this episode of Leading with James Ashton, which is supported by Saxton Bamfile, the executive search firm and leadership advisor. Please rate and review, and you can find more episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or Stitcher, including a conversation with Julie Maxton about breaking glass ceilings at Oxford University and the Royal Society, where she's executive director. I've never seen myself as a role model, to be honest, but I accept that some people do look at me as a role model, and I'm happy to talk about my career but I never set out to break any glass ceiling at all I just set out to be a good lawyer basically but life takes you in different directions and this is just where I've ended up. Mm